Welcome to uh, this week's episode of Whiskey and Wealth Tech. I'm here with uh, Jonathan Buersma from uh, Meradia Consulting. Uh, thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. Um, today's a little bit of a different episode. Uh, we'll be tasting our whiskey, but then jumping into a pre-recorded webinar that Jonathan and I led uh, regarding the uh, new SEC marketing rule and what firms need to do to uh, comply with that rule and what tools um, are available to help them do that. So Jonathan, uh, thank you for joining us. Do you want to uh, introduce yourself a little bit? Um, no. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, this is uh, kind of fun. I apologize if I start coughing. Um, I'm still getting over COVID a little bit. I do I do still have my sense of uh, of smell and taste, so um, I should be good there. But um, if I'm coughing, it's not the whiskey. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, you, you know, I have a long history um, in performance and uh, headed up the GIP standards at CFA Institute for many years um, and uh, joined Meradia this year, beginning of this year. And um yeah, excited about helping helping firms dealing with uh, issues like the marketing rule and other performance related issues. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you being here, Jonathan. Hopefully uh, the whiskey helps with the COVID symptoms. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. But uh, today we will be trying the Angel's Envy Rye that is finished in Caribbean rum casks. So I'll kind of share what the bottle looks like. But absolutely beautiful bottle you got wings on the back um if you're familiar with angels envy it's a it's a definitely a standout on any bar back that you'll see but without further ado let's uh dive right in so this is a really unique rye so it being finished in rum casts it's definitely got a lot more i would say sweet citrusy notes that I'm getting out of it more so than I get from other eyes. Yeah, it maybe a little cinnamon. Yep, definitely some cinnamon. Um and so it's yeah, this is interesting. It's even a little bit medicinal, maybe some maple maple syrup. Yeah, I was gonna say syrupy. Um uh yeah. Yeah, definitely maple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is good. It uh, you know fades pretty quickly sweet. on the palate, but it's sweet. It's good. This is a easy, easy drinker. Um, if you're not careful, you might uh, have a much lower level in the bottle than you were uh, thinking you would. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Angel's Envy is great. It's well known for their kind of taking old traditions of making whiskey and just innovating on them. So getting bourbons, rice, finishing them in different kinds of casks. And I think it's really cool that it's a father-son uh, business that was run. And so the the Lincoln family uh, created it and, um, you know, have really made a name for themselves for just the unique way they go about um, making whiskey. And again, with uh, these distinctive bottles, uh, you know, that's that's some of the greatest greatest marketing that you can do. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good looking bottle. Um, <laughs> it's almost like a, a like a dessert kind of drink almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is definitely a good after dinner winding down for the night. 
Yeah, this is great. Excellent. Well, opening me right up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely uh, makes the COVID symptoms a lot more uh, tolerable. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. Uh, we'll jump right into the webinar that we did. And again, my name is Alex Sermon, uh, Managing Director of Wealth here at First Trade, and you are listening to uh, Whiskey and Wealth Tech. So the, the marketing rule really is um, a consolidation of some existing rules, no action letters, um, staff guidance, and um, and so in many ways, it's uh, it's nothing new, um, but there are some nuances and some new areas uh, that we want to touch on. Um, I think it's really interesting that this rule um, not only references, but really leverages the GIP standards. Um, and uh, I have a, quite, quite a long history uh, with the GIP standards and um, and so we want to help uh, firms in, in leveraging, leveraging that, even though you don't have to be GIPS compliant, uh, you know, to comply with this rule. Um, there's a lot of tools uh, and um, a framework that, that is helpful in, in meeting some of the requirements. The scope of the rule really applies to, to two situations. The first um, is if you're presenting it to performance to more than one person, then the rule applies. Or if you're uh, apply, uh, presenting to one or more people and the presentation includes hypothetical performance um, and hypothetical performance is, um, is performance that's not actually been achieved by any portfolio. Um, and that includes model backtested, hi uh, hypothetical um, projected performance. And in most cases, this also includes uh, in the GIPS world, what we know is carve-outs. Um, all of that hypothetical performance is uh, prohibited, except uh, if certain uh, very specific criteria have been met. And in that case, um, if those criteria have been met, then um, it still is covered by this marketing rule. The second piece uh, of the scope uh, really relates to endorsements or testimonials that are, are done um, for compensation. And again, we're not gonna be really touching on that uh, today. First off, in terms of the actual numbers that are being presented, uh, firms are uh, required to show net returns um, with equal prominence uh, as gross returns. So um, in the past, firms may have only showed gross but now they're required to show both net and gross, or sorry, they're only required to show net, but if you show gross, you, you most definitely have to show net. Um, one, five and 10 year returns are required. Um, this is uh, for those that are GIPS compliant. I think this rule is, is going to be um, much easier to comply with, but uh, there are still some changes that, that need, to be made, uh, need to be made and uh, this is one of them. So uh, currently the GIPS standards don't require one, five and 10 year returns to be presented in a GIPS report, um, but that will have to be added to, um, to any GIPS report uh, going forward. Uh, there are, as I mentioned, some restrictions 
on how carve-outs and hypothetical uh, performance uh, are, are presented. Um, they, they introduce a concept called extracted performance, which is a subset of investments. And if you're going to show um, a subset of a portfolio, you have to uh, make available uh, the entire port the performance of the entire portfolio. So there's uh, some rules around that. And then they introduce this concept called related performance um, in which if you show um, not just a representative account, but if you show a what most of us would uh, know as a composite, it must include all similarly managed uh, portfolios in that same strategy. Um, now, related performance is not a composite defined according to GIPS um, because you don't have to be GIPS compliant, but it is a, um, a grouping uh, similar to a composite. And the SEC has, has noted that, um, to, that you should look to the GIPS standards and the, the associated guidance for, um, for help in terms of structuring these composites and rules uh, for for managing those. Um, related performance is not required. Um, so you're not required to create composites um, explicitly within the rule, but um, if you show a representative account, you have to somehow ensure that that performance is not higher than what the composite performance or related performance would have been. Um, and so the only really way that I know of doing that is to calculate the composite. Um, and so um, the rule also does say that you can exclude portfolios if the resulting performance um, is equal to or more conservative than that related performance or the composite performance. Um, that's not really something that's allowed within the GIP standards. So there's a difference there. Um, so again, um, you know, going back to the rules where or the principles of you have to be able to substantiate the performance that you're presenting, and you have to be able to prove that that performance is is not uh, better than what the composite or related performance is. You really are in a situation where you need to create composites, um, and so uh, we'll we'll talk about that here in, in just a second. Um, if we can go to the next slide, please, Alex. Um, talking about net of fee returns, um, they do, again, allow some flexibility um, within the rule. And firms can either use actual fees, actual net of fees, so calculating returns for all of those portfolios and netting and them down by the actual fees that were paid. Um, or they allow the use of model fees. Um, and so there's two options under that. Um, under that framework. And uh, one is to make sure that the model is equal to or more conservative than what the actual net of fees would have been. So if my actual net of fees is 5% and uh, I use a model uh, fee that results in performance that is 4.75%, that's fine um, because it's more conservative. Um, if it results in 5.25, uh, then you've got a problem. Um, so that's one option when when using uh, a model fee is just making sure that it's um, that it is more conservative than the actual fees. 
again, the idea is really to present something that is most representative of, um, of what that uh, prospective client would, would have received. So uh, if we can go to the next slide, this is really the heart of what we wanted to talk about today. Um, the first is, can you, can you systematically group uh, portfolios uh, by strategy? So that would be the first, the first thing. And I do know that some firms manage a lot of their performance and other tasks in Excel. Um, it's a fabulous tool, um, but probably not what I would recommend for, for any of these uh, activities. Um, so um, that's the first thing. Um, another thing to think about, how, how do you treat new or terminated portfolios? How are they... Um, added or removed from the composite? What's the timing? So a lot of firms, when they have new accounts, they might have a grace period um, to allow the portfolio manager to uh, get the portfolio fully invested. You really need to have a policy and say, okay, after, after a month or after th three months, uh, depending on the strategy perhaps, or the asset class, um, uh, that's when we consider the, the portfolio to, that's been enough time for them to get it fully invested. And that's when it gets included in the deposit. Um, cash flows. Um, is there a grace period where that portfolio that uh, experiences a significant cash flow is removed from the composite? And then after that grace period, it's added back. Um, so uh, important to have policies uh, around that. If you have performance that goes back 10 years, you have to um, be able to show that 10-year um, return. Uh, if you don't have 10 years, you need to go back as far as you, you, you can. Um, and, and so are those records uh, available and accessible uh, for 10 years? How are client restrictions uh, tracked and are they accessible? So if you got a, a handwritten note from uh, you know, uh, a, a client that says, hey, I'd like you to, to start raising cash because I'm going to, um, you know, buy a house, send a child to college, or maybe somebody's getting married and you need a, a, to raise some funds. Um, how, how are those instructions captured? And, and then what are the implications of that? Does that mean that this um, uh, portfolio has become non-discretionary and needs to be removed from the, the composite. We'll talk a little bit more about those here in a second. Um, and then it, I think it's really important to be able to distinguish between client-directed restrictions and manager um, discretion. So for example, if in this example, what I've just mentioned, the, the client says, I'd like to let cash accumulate um, you know, maybe I don't want to reinvest maturities or um, if there's sales or income that's generated, I don't want that reinvested. Um, is that because the client is directing uh, the, the manager to do that? Or maybe the manager says, hey, I want to take some money off the table. We want to um, hold a larger cash position because of our expectations of what the market's going to do. I might move the strategy over time. Um, so those are those are a few considerations there. Other things, um, you know, sometimes accounts are put on hold um, temporarily. Maybe they're ch changing uh, custodians where um, they can't trade the portfolio for a particular amount of time. Um, maybe in the private client world, maybe the individual passes away 
And so um, while the estate is being settled, uh, transactions can't be made on the, on the portfolio. So those are, those are um, I th things that you need to consider and have policies for. Um, does it need to be a certain amount of time where a, a portfolio is on hold um, before it becomes non-discretionary? Um, so I work with a client now that has a, a rule that if, if a portfolio is on hold more than three months, then it becomes non-discretionary. And why three months? Well, they figure that over three months, they would typically, by that point, um, be having some transactions uh, in the portfolio. And so um, then that portfolio would start to deviate from, from what the strategy is. So, um, you know, this is, uh, this is a complicated issue. Um, it's not just as easy as saying, oh, here are all my large cap portfolios. Um, and that's now a composite. There's, uh, there's a lot behind this. And, um, you know, certainly we are, are ready to, to, to help, uh, help you think through these things. Um, help you as you develop your policies and procedures and um, processes uh, around um, around this. And um, and I, I strongly, strongly encourage you to, to look to um, some sort of automated tool that will help you in managing these. I know lots of firms have thousands and thousands of accounts and, um, and that's really, um, it's too much to do by hand. Uh, at least I don't wanna do it. I have uh, two questions that are very similar, Jonathan, that I think would be good for you. Um, if they're GIPS compliant, do they need to do anything? And if a firm isn't GIPS compliant, what do they need to do to become GIPS compliant if they're complying with this rule? Gotcha, okay. So first of all, if, if you're GIPS compliant, yes, you do need um, to do some things. I mentioned the, the one, five and 10 year returns um, that are required. So that's not something that you would normally um, would have been required from GIPS to do. So that's something extra you need to do. Um, and, and also, you know, I think, you know, GIPS doesn't talk about some of these things that I had mentioned earlier about, um, you know, testimonials or, or things like that. Um, certainly in the area of portability, there are some uh, differences between what the GIPS standards require and what this rule requires. Um, so even if you're GIPS compliant, um, you do need to go through the rule and, and look and make sure that you're you're doing um, everything that's required. Now, that being said, your job is going to be much easier if you're GIPS compliant. Um, for firms that are um, are complying with the marketing rule but are not GIPS compliant, yeah, I think, you know, if you're doing these composites or this related performance that you, you really need to do to, to meet the requirements of the marketing rule, you're, you're a, a large way um, down the path uh, to, to becoming GIPS compliant. And I think the investment that is required to, to go the, the final step to become GIPS compliant and be able to reap the benefit of claiming GIPS compliance is absolutely worth it. Um, now, I'm, I'm a little biased given my history with GIPS, um, but I, I do think that that is, uh, is something that firms should definitely look at. Those were those two questions. Okay. Um, we've got one. So I think you answered this um, earlier about do you actually have to go back 10 years, which I believe the answer is yes, if you have that performance, but I'm going to change it a little bit. If you have more than 10 years of performance, do you have to show that additional performance or can you stop at 10? 
my understanding of the rule, and again, this is principles based, so there aren't there, there's a lot of uh, specifics that are not present. Um, but uh, my my interpretation of the rule is that you don't need to go further back. You can if you wish, um, but you don't need to. And um, so that's 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 my take, and I'm sticking to it. Sounds good. Um, another question on your take. Um, what is your take on the interpretation of the portability provision of this rule? Uh, you know, we didn't specifically discuss this yeah. um, as part of this presentation, but if you're uh, comfortable answering. Yeah, I, um, I think my personal opinion is that the current uh, uh, guidance or the current rule uh, seems to be very extreme. Um, and basically says that if you, you know, if you come over uh, and bring your your performance from a, one firm to another, um, that you can only use that as long as you're at that firm. So if I if I join your asset management firm, Alex, and I bring over my my book of business, my strategy, everything, um, you can you can present that for for your firm now because you've acquired me. Uh, but only as long as I'm there, um, which really seems to fly in the face and conflict with um, the rules regarding um, mutual funds and the Investment Company um, Act. And so um, those rules are different. I expect there to be further guidance on a lot of these things, but I don't expect that necessarily before the November 4th deadline. Um, so I think there's more to come. Excellent. Hope you all uh, are able to meet uh, with this new rule and are excited about the way that the SEC is changing to be more principles based and really um, take the bull by the horns and make sure that firms are uh, consistently marketing. Thanks for hosting, Alex. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, and have a, a wonderful rest of your day.